Well, good morning, church family. How are you today? Do me a favor and stand with us this morning. Look all the way across the auditorium. Wave at somebody that you always purpose not to look at. Let them know that you love even the opposite side. <laughs> serve a good God, amen.
Sometimes Christmas can be crazy. If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so we just encourage you to take this time today just to lay down all the busyness of the season. That day is over, and now it's time to get back to just focusing on the real reason for the season, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Yeah. 
we worship you, we worship you, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's just lift up our voices to him in, in singing and in thanksgiving and in worship. We lift our voices to you, Lord, in worship. As Surividi la brevidi deshtum gracing divashte branda. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We worship you, Jesus. We worship the name above every name. We worship your name, Lord Jesus. Our Prince of Peace. Our Prince of Peace. Father, we just thank you that those people in our church and the families of those in our church experience your great peace. For you're our Prince of Peace. We worship you today. We thank you for giving your life. We thank you for coming to the earth. We thank you now that you live in us that we're never going to be orphans or left for you never leave us or forsake us we worship you jesus hallelujah blessed be your name lord jesus blessed be your name hallelujah hallelujah well, don't we love Jesus? Amen. Amen. Before you're seated, we're going to do what we do every Sunday. We're going to wave to all the people from our church watching from home. So Ben is going to pan that camera at you and let's say hey to all of our church family at home. We have many that watch live every week, and so we're glad that they're joining us this way. Amen. And then before you're seated, Go ahead and wave at somebody or give them an elbow bump. Some people, I guess you can hug them. So just whatever you want to do. <laughs> and then after you've done that, well, then you may be seated. We want to dismiss our children to their class at this time. Praise the Lord. I'm still not done with Christmas. So Merry Christmas, everybody. Ah! And this year, I'm going to ask them to leave. Okay, uh, my husband a few years ago let me make the call about when everything got taken down at the church. That's why we've had decorations up a little longer than we used to years ago. Because that's how women are. So we're just leaving all these Christmas trees up, I think, one more week. Who votes for that? You know, I think we need it this year. So, Bill, nothing goes down this week. I just think we need it a little longer. Yeah, amen. Merry Christmas. Amen. We have so much to be thankful for, don't we? It's the intangibles that we have so much to be thankful for. And those intangibles only come from God. Amen. And those who know him. 
we want to let you know a few things. There is going to be no live stream service tonight, so there will be no service tonight. Many churches around the country, I mentioned this before, they're not having church today at all. And um, because a lot of reason is everybody is so tired from Christmas, and their volunteers are so tired for Christmas that they don't want to have church. That's fine. We, we aren't that way because we have wonderful volunteers at our church. So thank you to our security team and our ushers and our children's workers and our media ministry. Thank you. Amen. That you're not tired. But honestly, if they were, we would still come and have church because we just would. Okay, a few wonderful testimonies I want to uh, share with you today. The first, okay, Barbara, stand up. This is sweet Barbara. Everybody knows her because she amens so loud. <laughs> anyway, this is a testimony about her 92-year-old mother. Now, She's going to correct me if I don't remember it all correctly. Okay. Within reason. Okay. So her mother is in an assisted living or nursing home type of place. She was not doing well, and the assisted living people said, gather the family, she's going to die. Well, Barbara's brother went there, and um, he said, I don't see death on her. I see life in her. And, of course, their, their whole family is a family of faith and of prayer. So, uh, the little town that they lived in, oh, sh we can't, we were going to say, but anyway, they shipped her to a different hospital in a larger town that's a very good hospital. And um, we all, we, everybody prayed, we all prayed for her, and um, so they found out that she had COVID and pneumonia in both lungs at 92. They started treating her, and immediately, right, or very soon, she started getting better. Okay, and how, was this a week ago? About two weeks ago. And anyway, she's, she totally recovered, and she immediately started getting better. She's back in her nursing home now, and she's doing great, right? You want to say anything else? Oh, that's right. The doctor, for the people at home, they can't hear you. The doctor said the mother is strong as an ox. Well, that's the life of God in you. Amen. Because her mother's a little fireball. Praise the Lord. So that is a great report. Praise the Lord. Now we have another good report. I'm not going to tell who this person is, but um, I'm going to read part of what, uh, what she wrote to me. Uh, okay. So... Uh, this lady, she has been having, she's been talking to me about it for a few years. Problems on her job. She, they overworked her. They persecuted her. And it was just bad. She wanted to quit. But she prayed about it and felt like she wasn't supposed to. So she stuck it out. And um, she said that the attack was so intense. And I talked to her throughout the thing, and so I know it was intense. And she'd been going through for a few years. Okay, so she said, I did exactly what the word told me to do. It's been 1.9 months. 
okay? Her boss was attacking her. She just kept quoting the word of God and staying steady, like our pastor preached a few weeks ago and has been preaching, okay? And she says, I now sit where the CEO used to sit. I have brought several co-workers to Christ, uh, several co-workers into Christ, and she just got, this was a few weeks ago she gave this to me, a 33.4% raise during a pandemic. Amen. He is a true and faithful God. Hallelujah. Uh, it's a testimony because it's one for the prosperity and peace of God. He scattered those who came against me, and I learned so much. I grew in such a huge way in wisdom, in keeping a watch over my mouth, in forgiveness, and many other spiritual growth areas. Amen. So you know what? What a great testimony of, you know, just because stuff gets and just because stuff gets difficult doesn't mean we're supposed to jump ship. Pray about it. Maybe you're just supposed to hold steady in the storm and God, then she did, and look how God brought her out on the other side. What if she had quit when it was tough? She would have not, she's in the same, she's in the office where the CEO was. And a 33% raise in a pandemic. So God is faithful. Hold steady. That's such a good testimony for holding steady and being faithful. Amen. Uh, Want to just let you know that um, the Christmas dinner and food for families has been such a blessing. This is the first time that we've done this this year. And it, it has done what we had in our heart. We were not only able to help We'll give you maybe some specific testimonies if we're able to. I'm not sure if it's appropriate is why. Um, but we've been able to help some people who are not only in our church, but neighbors of people who are in our church, by and large, they're not born again. And they're going through very difficult times. And so when you give them that gift and you reach out to them, it ministers the love of God to them. And then those people in our church have been witnessing to those, to those folk. And so that's really what it was all about. So we've been able to do that, and we're continuing to do that even today. So thank you to everybody who gave to all of our projects. Thank you so much because it is producing fruit for the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. And then um, just a reminder that today is the last day um, for our uh, uh, bookstore Christmas sale, 20% off everything. The books that we have been announcing this last month, they are in. And um, Anita, if she's back, is Anita back there today? Anita. Oh, okay. Well, we'll, we'll order more. But anyway, don't you appreciate Anita? She's there every Sunday. She's precious. Anyway, amen. And then the information about giving is on a slide up above. And... Let us pray. Lord, we worship you with our mouths. We worship you with our lives. We worship you with our giving and the first fruits of our increase because you are worthy. We, we, don't, we know that when we give, that you're going to provide for us and you're going to bless us. But we don't give to get we give in obedience, and we give to worship you. We give to advance the kingdom of God. 
Make us a blessing, Lord. Make us a blessing, for it is more blessed to give than it is to even receive. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.
Amen, 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 amen. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We magnify your holy name. Lord Jesus, we exalt you as our King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you, Father, for utterance today in the Spirit of God. I thank you for speaking through my lips and thinking through my mind, Holy Spirit. We declare that we have the mind of Christ. Thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I was reminiscing about some things this week. And as a 21-year-old boy, kid, child, I got a hold of a tape series by Brother Hagen called Mountain Moving Faith. And I had never heard anything like that in my life. I grew up in the church, was saved when I was a child. And nobody had ever even hinted at the reality, at the truth that we had authority on the earth and that our words would control our own lives. I wore those tapes out. I listened to them hundreds of times, a six-tape series, and God supernaturally kept my cassette player going. Because I mean to tell you, I was listening to those things every waking hour for several years. I didn't know the connection between faith and authority at the time. I was just trying to change some things in my own life. I was trying to believe God out of the trouble that I got myself into. And honestly, I can tell you, without hesitation, every bit of the trouble I was in was my own doing, the result of my own doing. And so I began to put the Word of God in my heart as much as I could. And through a series of events, the Lord led me to go to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and go to Bible school, Brother Hagin's Bible school in Broken Arrow, right outside of Tulsa. And when I was there, early on when I was there, I heard Brother Hagin teach on how to be led by the Spirit of God. And I'm telling you, fireworks went off on the inside of me. I had never, I wasn't familiar with the different products and other tape series that Brother Hagen had. Wouldn't have mattered, I didn't have any money to get it. But come to think of it, I didn't have the money for the Mountain Moving Faith series either. It just showed up one day. And from the time that I first heard Brother Hagen talking about being led by the Spirit and the, the surrounding subjects about man being a spirit being, it has become the, the pursuit of my study. It has become the, the single most sought-after thing in me and in my life. I just can't get away from the simple truth that we can be led by the Spirit of God and that God wants us to be. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, it says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, folks, notice the equating, the equal basis 
that he puts on being led by the Spirit of God and being a, a son or a child of God. In other words, he's saying every, every believer, every person that's saved should be, can be led by the Spirit of God. And in times of trouble like we've experienced this last year, when I say we, I'm not talking so much about the church, but the country and even things going on around the world. There's never been a more important time to be led by the Spirit of God. Notice verse 16 tells us how he's going to lead us. The Spirit himself. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Now think about what Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is telling us that to know ourselves in Christ, to know what we have in Christ, comes down to being able to recognize the impression of the Spirit, the bearing witness of the Holy Ghost himself. Now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Verse 23, Paul tells us how, the, how man is made up. He said, I pray, God, that your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless into the coming of Jesus Christ. Notice that word whole, W-H-O-L-E. It means complete. He's telling us the complete makeup of man. You remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where God said, let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion over the earth. Folks, there is nothing more important to God. There's nothing more important than the message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. There's nothing that's higher on God's priority list than man having authority and exercising authority here on the earth. Now, the devil wants to keep us in the dark about this. The devil doesn't want us to have authority. He certainly doesn't want us to exercise authority. But there's nothing more important in being a child of God than knowing how to and effectively exercising authority here in the earth. Now, look with me to Hebrews chapter 2. And remember what we spoke of in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. Notice in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, it says, For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place, now the one he's talking about is an angel. He's going to quote, I believe Paul wrote this. It's certainly Paul's message. And there's good historical evidence to support the idea that Paul wrote this as an addendum to the book of Galatians, uh, to the letter he wrote to the churches in Galatia. If that's the case, it would explain why he didn't identify himself as the author. If it had been a standalone letter, he would have authored it and identified himself just like he did with all the other letters that he wrote. 
But we know that the Galatian church was being plagued by Jews, religious Jews, that were trying to convince them to keep the law of Moses, to convince them that the law of Moses had not passed away with the sacrifice of Jesus. And Paul blows up over that. He says that's the stupidest thing in the world to believe and stupid, one of the stupidest things to try to adhere to. So he writes a letter which is certainly identical to the rest of the, the letters that he wrote regarding his gospel and his doctrine. And he's quoting from Psalm 8 where it says at the creation account when God said let us make man our own image after our own likeness. Those words image and likeness mean an exact duplicate in kind. In other words, God said, let us make man just like us. The us being God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he quotes Psalm 8, where it says the angels, at the point of creation, the creation of man, questioned. Verse 6, one in a certain place testified, saying, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hands. Now in Psalm 8, you know, of course, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. New Testament was written in Greek. This word angels in the Greek just means messenger. But in the Old Testament, the word that's used for angels in Genesis chapter, I'm, I'm sorry, in uh, Psalm 8, talking about the angels, it says, Thou hast made him a little lower than Elohim, a name for God, the name that God uses in Genesis 126. So the angels are looking at this idea that God has revealed about creating man for the purpose of having authority on the earth. And the angels are saying, who is this man? Now, folks, we know that there were things that happened before the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. We know that there were civilizations, there were beings here on the earth that were under Lucifer's control for a time. We know that the world that was destroyed to put it in the condition in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 and the earth was without form and void and darkness moved upon the face of the deep whatever was there wasn't man because when God declares his purpose to create man to have authority they remembered the last time God gave authority to some created being and that was Lucifer of course he wound up rebelling against God and taking a third of the angels with him in that rebellion. And he destroyed the earth. He brought destruction upon the earth. When God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, he certainly didn't make them without form and void. But something happens to get to the place where the earth is without form and void. We don't know the entirety of what that would be but we know who, who it was that was behind it, which was Lucifer, Satan after the fall. 
So the angels are hearing about God creating another being, an exact duplicate in kind. And they question this. What is man that thou art mindful of him? What importance have you attached to man, this thing, this created being called man, and why? We always think of the angels as being in the service of God more powerful than ourselves. But the Bible says God put the angels here to serve us. Those who would be heirs of salvation. So the angels are questioning God. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, literally, God, you have made man just a little lower than yourself. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Death is the only thing that's left to conquer. The position and the place that God has for you and I on this earth hasn't even been, the surface hasn't even been scratched to find out what it is. The Bible says in the ages to come, God will reveal himself, himself to us and his glory to us in things that we've never even considered. What is man that thou art mindful of him? What is man that thou art mindful of him? Now, as I said a little bit earlier, the idea of being led by the Spirit of God is something that has driven me in my study and in my research, in my attempt to understand the Word of God to a greater and greater degree. Because God desired, as revealed by the Holy Ghost, one of his greatest desires is to live in us and to work in us, to be our God and for we, us to be his people. Now let's consider some things. The Bible says God knows everything. He claimed to know the end from the beginning. Did God know that man would fall? He had to. God makes man in his own image. He breathes in him the breath of life. And the result is man is a, a righteous being. There's no sin in the world. Man has ultimate authority here on the earth, just as God said that he would or said that he did. And so there's nothing in this earth that can hurt or harm mankind. Now, where did Adam get his, the knowledge that he had? He didn't go to school. He didn't learn from his five physical senses. The source of Adam's knowledge, which was admittedly greater than anything that we could 
compare it to. I mean, he's naming the animals, for goodness sakes. God didn't bring an animal before him and say, that's a giraffe. He brought the animals before Adam and said, what's that? And Adam names the animals. He, had, he must have had an intricate knowledge, or at least he gained an intricate knowledge, of how the world works. He wouldn't be able to exercise authority over the earth if he didn't know something about how it worked, would he? Every bit of his intellect, every bit of his knowledge came from his spirit. It came as a part of his relationship with God by God breathing of himself into the man and the woman. He's a spirit being who has a soul and who lives in a body. Now, the Bible says, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature or a new creation. A new creature or a new creation. Folks, Adam was righteous because the Spirit of God was breathed into him. He was his source of life. But his righteousness went only as far as his obedience. His righteousness was dependent on him obeying God. There was only one commandment that was given to him. Don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, for in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, he couldn't have been talking about physical death. Because after Adam sinned against God, the Bible says he lived for 930 years. Well, if he's not talking about physical death, what death is he talking about? There's only one other kind of death, and that's spiritual death. So he told Adam, if you disobey me and eat of this tree, you'll die spiritually. And he did. He did indeed. So now God is locked out to a great degree in this earth and in Adam's affairs. So what's his plan? His plan, and this was his plan from the beginning before the worlds were ever created, before God ever created the universe, not just the creation that we're acquainted with, but from the very beginning, from even before what we would call the beginning, God planned for man to have the right to claim the righteousness of God through the work of Jesus, not because of what he did, but because of what Jesus did. You've got a greater righteousness You've got a greater relationship with God than Adam had in the Garden of Eden. Because the maintaining of your righteousness has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your actions or your activity. The shed blood of Jesus, the Savior and the Son of God, 
is greater than any sin you can commit. Now look with me over to Philippians chapter 1. Paul tells us some things that speak to our authority here on the earth. I'm going to start reading in verse 20. Paul said, again, inspired by the Holy Ghost, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy in the faith. Now notice what he's saying. He's saying, I am in a strait betwixt two. I've got a tough decision to make. On one hand, if it was up to me, I would die. He's talking about physical death there. I would welcome physical death so that I could depart and be with the Lord. But it's better for you if I stay here on the earth. It's better for you if I don't die physically, that I can share truth and revelation, greater revelation with you than I have already. But notice who he calls I. I am in a strait betwixt two. The difficult decision for me is shall I live here on the earth or shall I depart and be with Christ? Look at the authority that he's exercising in his own life. He's saying he makes the decision. He's not saying I prayed about it and God said he wanted me to stay here. He's claiming authority in his own life. He's saying it's his choice. His choice. Living or dying. It's his choice. Well, if he's got a choice, folks, we've got the same choice. God's no respecter of persons. He wouldn't give Paul that choice and not give you the same thing. Or else he's not a respecter of persons. He would be a respecter of persons to give Paul more than he would give you or me. And that can't be true. That would make the Bible a lie. How did Paul get to the place where he exercised that kind of authority? Turn back with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 gives us the context of Paul's declaration of the believer's right to be led by the Holy Ghost. I'm going to start in verse, 17, uh, verse 14, rather. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. Paul said, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. 
but what I hate, that do I. Now let's define our terms a little bit so this will make sense. Paul is saying, he's explaining to us in much greater detail than any other place. Paul had mentioned to the, the Romans that he had attempted to come to them several times, talking about coming to the church at Rome or the different churches that were meeting in the homes of the Romans. He said he's attempted to get to him several times, but, the whole, but uh, Satan has hindered him. Thank God he didn't make it. Because if, the, if he had made it to Rome to speak to and edify the churches, then a lot of the things that he writes to them would have been covered in the meetings and the services that he held there. And we might not have record of it. And this account, Paul's own account as he describes to the Romans in chapter 7, is unlike anything he ever wrote. It gives us more detail and provides for us more understanding of how to live a victorious life than any other thing that he wrote. I have no doubt that the other churches that he established and founded were well versed in these things that he wrote to the Romans. But knowing that he wasn't going to get to them, or at least not in the time frame that he had hoped for, he commits these things to paper. And the Holy Ghost had something to say for us so that we could understand and we could grow in the same way that he did. Notice the difference that Paul makes in who he says calls himself I and the actions that take place in his life. He said, the things that I want to do, I want to do from the inside, the man on the inside, the things that I want to do, the real me. That's not the things I carry out in the earth. And the things that you may see me doing, the sinful things and the temptation that I fall into here on the earth are things that I, the man on the inside, despise within the, act, the actions of his flesh and the real him are separated and in conflict with one another. Somehow or another, I think we look at the Bible characters and imagine them to be something more than just human beings. Maybe it's easier for us to think that God would choose somebody not like me, but somebody that had more than, I, than you and I do. But everybody's the same, folks. We all have the same things to deal with. We all have the same temptations. We all have the same issues in life. So Paul says, he admits it freely. That which I do, I allow not. In other words, I hate the things that my flesh leads me into. For what I would, what the man on the inside wants to do, is not the things that I'm doing. But the things that I hate... That's what the man on the inside wants to conquer. 
If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Again, the contrast is the man on the inside and the man on the outside. The actions of the flesh. Now then, notice the, the conclusion that he comes to. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth with me. In other words, the sin in your flesh. Notice the, the conclusion that he draws. Now folks, the only reason Paul would draw this conclusion, the only reason he'd be spending any time talking about this or relating his experience, his earthly walk to the Romans and thereby to the church worldwide. If he didn't have a problem with his flesh, this would be of no use to us. But he's saying that he has such a problem with his flesh that he's had to commit himself to understanding it to come to the place where he can be free from it. That sounds a lot like you and me, doesn't it? That doesn't sound like a superhuman Christian to me. That sounds like a normal person that's being honest with himself and God. Let me read that verse again. Verse 17 is so important. Now then, it is no more I that do it. I'm not the one committing the sin. I, the man on the inside, hates the sin that my body leads me into. Well, if I, the man on the inside, wants to do something other than what my flesh is leading me to do, then my flesh can't be the real me. The real me on the inside always wants to do what's right. Therefore, the man on the inside is the perfect man. Now then, it is no more I that do it. Commit sin, in other words, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh. Now notice again, he doesn't take credit for the actions of the flesh as being him. He says, I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing. For the will is present with me. The man on the inside always wants to do the right thing. The man on the inside always wills to do right. The man on the inside always wills to side in with righteousness. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. In other words, he's admitting that he hasn't found the answer at this point in his life, at this point in his Christian walk. He's saying, I have not found the answer. I have not found the power to overcome the desires of my flesh so that the man on the inside, the man that's created in the image and likeness of God, can be revealed. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that's what I do. Now if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. He's saying it again. He's telling us. The actions of my flesh, the sinful actions of my flesh, that's not the real me. The real me is the man on the inside that always wants to do right. I find then a law 
that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. The man on the inside always wants to obey the word. But I see another law in my members, in my flesh, in other words, warring against the law of my mind. Now, he speaks of the law of his mind, and he speaks of the mind as the seat of the will. In this case, he's not making the distinction between the spirit and the soul as opposed to the body. He's just making the distinction between the man on the inside and the man on the outside that you can see. So he says, I see another law working against my flesh. Warring against the law of my mind or the inner man and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am. Now this is not Paul's condition at the point that he's writing these things. But it's a condition that he was in when he was struggling to understand and how to operate in righteousness sometime earlier than when he wrote this letter. Maybe before he went into the ministry, but maybe not. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Here's the answer. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, where he said, I couldn't find the power to overcome sin in my flesh. He's telling us now that the power to overcome the sin in your flesh is available to you through Jesus. Now think about what that means. That means Paul spent some period of time saved and filled with the Holy Ghost, but subject to sin. He spent some period of time operating under the condemnation of the devil for not being able to live out in his flesh, in his earthly Christian walk the things that the man on the inside knew that he should be doing. He's saying the man on the inside is always on the right side of righteousness. But how do I let that man on the inside dominate my flesh so that I live up to what I know I should be doing? He said the power for that's in Jesus. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, the inner man, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh serve sin. Now go over into chapter 8. Paul didn't write in chapters and verses any more than you write letters in chapter and verses. It's still the same topic. He's telling us that he found the power to overcome his flesh through Jesus. And because he's found that power, because Jesus died for this purpose, notice what he says, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Notice the last phrase, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Folks, if you look back at the original manuscripts and other uh, translations will tell you the same thing. This phrase, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, is not in what was considered to be verse 1. It's a part of verse 4. It's written in verse 4. It's translated in verse 4. But why in the world did the translators add it to what verse 1 says? Apparently, 
what Paul is telling us was beyond the ability of the translators to believe. What other reason would there be for to, to take upon themselves to add a phrase that's not there? Folks, this reality is too great for the King James translators to accept. Paul has just told us about his experience, his Christian walk at that point, at some point in time. And he identifies that Christian walk as desiring to do the right thing from the man on the inside, the spirit of man, but living out sinful activity in his flesh. But he says there's there's power in Jesus to overcome that. And because there's power in Jesus to overcome that, in other words, because Jesus has purchased an eternal righteousness for us, not a righteousness like Adam had. I think one of the greatest tricks and lies that the devil plays on church, on Christians worldwide, is the idea that if we could just been in the Garden of Eden, a place where there was no sin, a place where it was perfect, If we could have just lived there, then we would have been content. But you're in a much better place than the Garden of Eden. The righteousness that you and I have in Jesus and because of his sacrifice is so much greater than the righteousness Adam had. If you look at Paul as an example, Paul tells us in chapter 7, that there's any number of places that he would have fallen because of his inability to control his own flesh. Again, that doesn't sound like a superhuman Christian to me. Sounds like a normal guy. So because of what Jesus has done, because of the righteousness that he purchased for us, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Notice he didn't say there is no condemnation to them that live right. That's what the translators are adding. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that live right. Well, folks, Paul shows us that the way to gain the power, to access the power, to live right, comes through Jesus and the work that he's already done. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying there's no condemnation to any of those things that my flesh led me into. Folks, can I give you a surefire way to fail as a Christian? The surefire way to fail as a Christian is to always try to do right. Because the only way you can come to that place of always doing right is to trust yourself and your own power and your own ability. But if you'll turn it around and say, understand that you're not trying to do right to be righteous, but because you're righteous, 
you have the power to do right. That's the place of no condemnation. If these words are to be believed, that means not one thing that you or I or any other Christian has ever done on this earth is sufficient to rob you of righteousness. All the things that you felt guilty about, that because of that guilt you may not have done what God wanted you to do, said what he wanted you to say or operated in the way he wanted you to operate. None of those things were sufficient to keep you from operating in the power of God, either for your own benefit or the benefit of somebody else. All the things that the devil has told you that disqualify you are not able to disqualify you. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Let's keep reading. Here's why this is good news. And remember who discovered this. The guy that can't control his flesh. This was a part of his discovery process. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus for, verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. What does it mean, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus? Well, that would have to be a righteous life, wouldn't it? The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What is the law of sin and death? Paul said, I see another law working in my members. I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another, uh, another law warring against the members or warring against my flesh. And remember what he said? He said, therefore, I've come to realize that it's not the man on the inside that's doing wrong. It's the law of sin in my members. We'll never get rid of that law of sin in our members, folks. That's why the redeemed bodies at Jesus appearing is such an important thing. God knows we're sinful human beings in practice. He knows the law of sin and death is working in our flesh, but doesn't bind the inward man. It has no power over the inward man unless we give it power. Unless we agree with the, the guilt and the condemnation of the enemy. Otherwise, it has no power over us. The law of sin and death, uh, I'm sorry, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. He's saying the law was weak because it didn't give us the power to overcome our flesh. It left us in the same place that Paul was in in chapter 7. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin condemned sin in the flesh. In other words the condemnation came down on the sin. And not on you. Sin has already been condemned. Even if you participate in it. Now folks, we're obviously coming from a position that we assume that we all are in the same place as Paul in chapter 7. 
We always want to do right. We're not trying to game the system. We're not trying to live our lives in an unrighteous way, knowing that God's forgiveness will bring us into heaven anyway. Paul is honest about his condition. He said the man on the inside hates the sinful actions of the flesh. And all he needs is the power to overcome the sinfulness of the flesh. And that's Jesus. What the law could not do in that it was weak to the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Here's a righteousness that goes beyond Adam's. Here's a righteousness that doesn't depend on the actions of the believer. But instead depends on the spotless blood of Jesus that was shed. So Jesus condemned sin in the flesh, verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Here's this phrase that was pulled up into verse 1. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now the translators couldn't accept that the, this walking not after the flesh, but in the spirit was not connected to the no condemnation of verse 1. This is a rare situation in the scripture, in the King James translation. But it's one where the, the translators just punted. Verse 1 is not true to the uh, original text. And there's no other place in the Bible that I'm aware of that the translators purposely, deliberately, pulled up something from another verse. Now their purpose in translating, there are places where they added words, but those are not, there's no other place in the Bible where it's a complete thought like they moved in chapter 8. And as I said, we assume that the translators are trying to give us greater understanding. That's why they put other words in the scripture. To try to bring us greater understanding than the words themselves would suggest. And by and large they did a fantastic job. But this is one that they just punted. They couldn't accept that there is no condemnation to people unless they're overcoming their flesh. But the bondage that that brings keeps you from walking in the righteousness that Jesus paid for. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit the, minds of, uh, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now, he's just identified what being spiritually minded is. Being spiritually minded is to realize the man on the inside is not the one doing the works on the outside. The minding of the things of the Spirit. See, if Paul wasn't spiritually minded, he wouldn't care whether or not he was, his flesh was sinning. I know the devil punches people's tickets a lot of times on this idea of the unpardonable sin. 
And it's a very common thing for people who don't know the word and for people that haven't walked in the truth of the word to be, for Satan to use the condemnation that's already upon them in their minds, not from God, but in their minds, to question whether or not they've committed the unpardonable sin. And I always, when people ask me things like this, I always have the same answer. I ask them very simply, Do you, would you care if you committed the unpardonable sin? And everybody breaks down in tears and says, oh, yes, absolutely, I care. Well, then you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. See, if you didn't care, you'd committed the unpardonable sin. Then that might be evidence that you could have. But if it matters to you, then that means you're spiritually minded and not carnally minded. The devil is real good about putting a thought in your mind and then telling you it's yours. For to be carnally minded is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither can be, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, he's just identified being in the flesh as not caring about God or his word. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if you're living right. That seems to be what the translators think. But that's not what the text says. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. He's saying that being spiritually minded enough to make Jesus the Lord of your life means you're spiritually minded. See, there being no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus does away with the idea that only spiritually minded people can live right. He's saying you're in the spirit not in the flesh. And therefore a recipient of the no condemnation of verse 1. Because you've made Jesus your Lord. And if Christ be in you the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. Who's righteousness? Well it wasn't Adam's. And it's not Adam's kind of righteousness that's depending on our action to, to maintain our position with God. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. That righteousness is of Jesus. It's a result of Jesus' shed blood. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Do you see the context of being led by the Spirit of God? The context is to understand righteousness. And to accept that that righteousness, a part of that righteousness, 
is the presence of the Holy Ghost on the inside of us that will always lead us into the will of God. It will always lead us into God's perfect will. How do we walk in righteousness? If we accept the fact that we have been made righteous by Jesus' blood, which is identified in Scripture over and over and over again, then how do we appropriate the power that Paul found that was in Jesus to help him conquer his flesh? We know that Paul does conquer it. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27, Paul said, but I keep my body under and bring it into subjection. Well, that's the power to, to perform what he wanted to do in chapter 7 of Romans. But notice Paul goes from struggling with his flesh to understanding that the power in Jesus Christ will help us overcome that flesh to living it out in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27 so that he keeps his body under subjection. And the way that he says that identifies the spirit of man in action as well. I keep under my body. I bring my body under subjection. He's saying his body is a possession. It's not the real him. So what Paul found out about the righteousness of God brought him into the place where the man on the inside could dominate the man on the outside. How did he do that? Well, folks, he had to do it the way that you do anything else and receive anything else from God, and that is by faith. And remember, faith is believing God's word to be true no matter what it looks like, no matter what it feels like. So what did Paul do of a necessity? Well, the only way you can exercise faith is by word or in action. So if Paul comes to the place where he's living out the righteousness of God in his flesh, then he has had to appropriate the power of God in righteousness or the power of Jesus' righteousness through his words and his actions. He had to have begun making confessions about his righteousness. That's the only way you can appropriate the word. That's the only way you can exercise authority. So if you or I or any other Christian anywhere determine to say who you are in righteousness, to speak the righteousness of God, that's the only way you can appropriate that power. It's not enough just to know that we've been made righteous. We have to apply it to our lives. James 1.22 says, But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. See, the devil wants you to feel guilty enough to where you won't mention righteousness. Let's just ignore that part. I'm trying to do the best I can. But if on the other hand, you take the truth of righteousness and begin to confess it into your life, then the benefits of the power of God to overcome your flesh become a reality. Let me give you an example of that. Say this after me. I will not fear, for you are with me. 
I will not be dismayed, for you are my God. You strengthen me. You help me. You uphold me with the right hand of your righteousness. And in your righteousness I am established. Oppression is far from me, for I do not fear. And terror shall not come nigh me. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. And every tongue that rises up against me, in judgment, I do condemn. This is my heritage as a child of God. And my righteousness is of God. You start making that confession several times a day and see what that does to your life. You'll witness the breakdown of Satan's power to hold you in bondage to things that he used to keep you bound up in. That's where condemnation flees out the window. That's when the reality, the truth of who we are in Christ begins to make a difference in the way we live. That's what provides us with the power that Paul found to be able to keep his body under, to bring his body under subjection to the man on the inside. One of the things the Bible says took place when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden is that they lost control of their tongue. Before the fall, all knowledge came from the presence of God on the inside of them. But spiritual death means separation from God. So when they fell, when they disobeyed God and died spiritually, they lost that source of knowledge and revelation that they had before. In James chapter 3, he describes the power of the tongue or the, the, the evil of the tongue. He says it's set on course, set on fire by the course of nature. In other words, he's saying the tongue, because of the fall, because of the law of sin and death in the earth, he's saying the tongue becomes the source of iniquity. So whereas it's the means whereby we exercise authority, that authority has to come from the foundation of God's word to be applied in the way that God wants it to be. They lost the ability, Adam and Eve lost the ability in the Garden of Eden to speak from their spirit. From that point forward, they only spoke the things that they saw and witnessed the source of their tongue, the use of their tongue, was only according to the five physical senses. But we have, because of the righteousness of Jesus, because of the presence of God on the inside of us, we have the power to reclaim that word. When I first started listening to those tape series by Brother Hagin, 
the Mountain Mountain Moving Faith series, it took me several years to right the ship. It took me several years to begin to learn how to say the right things and to avoid the circumstances from making me say the wrong things. I was surprised when I started examining my own life how many things I was speaking against myself. And so it's not something that happens overnight. It is a process, and a lot of times people give up in the middle of the process. But if you stay with it and say what the Word says, no matter how you feel, call yourself the righteousness of God when the devil is screaming in your ear trying to heap condemnation on you for things that you did. You meaning the man on the outside. It took me several years to get the ship righted, to get back on the right course and off the wrong course, as it will to all of us. But the power to do it is in the confession of the righteousness of God. The power to right the ship, the the power to turn your life around. Rest in the power that comes to us when we confess ourselves to be righteous because of Jesus. No weapon formed against us shall prosper because we're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Think about what that means, folks. There's no attack of the enemy that can take us under. There's no attack of the enemy that can rob us of God's greatest blessings when we know who we are in Christ. When we say who we are in Christ. When we identify with the righteousness of God that was purchased for us by the shed blood of Jesus and not by our own actions. Do you realize that if we take a position that our righteousness is dependent on our own actions, do you realize that that that's spiritual pride? That's us saying that we know better because of how we feel than God's word that's eternal and all-powerful. Now, a lot of the church will get on to you and call you arrogant and prideful when you say who you are according to what the Bible says. When you start saying that you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that'll stir other Christians up. It makes them go crazy. Because their idea is to be humble is to confess yourself to be a sinner. But humility is submitting yourself to God. So if he says you're righteous, true humility is for you to agree with him. And say it about yourself as well. We should not fear, for God is with us. We shall not be afraid or dismayed because he is on our side. He strengthens us.
He helps us. He upholds us with the right hand of his righteousness. It's his righteousness that keeps you afloat. No weapon formed against us shall prosper because our righteousness is of him. Folks, this is part of the church standing up and being the church. It's a necessary part for us to believe and to speak so that in these last days we can do the works of Jesus just like he said we would. It's a foundation principle to do greater works than he did. Just like he said we would. We are made righteous by the finished work of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you so much for your great plan of redemption. You planned for us a righteousness that, exce that exceeds and excels over the righteousness that Adam had in the Garden of Eden. We magnify you, Father, because righteousness is not dependent on our actions, but was accomplished by the shedding of Jesus' blood. Because we are righteous, Father, It brings us into a greater understanding that there is no condemnation to us for where we stumble and fall. Nor will there ever be any condemnation when we get tripped up by the flesh. But rather, Father, you see the man on the inside. You see the new creation, the new creatures in Christ Jesus that we have been made. Father, our hearts are full of love in just seeing a glimpse of what you've done for us. Reveal to us the entirety of who you've made us to be. That we may do the works of Jesus and even greater works in these last days. We magnify you, Father. In the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Let's all stand together. If you're wondering where those scriptures came from that we made our confession from, it's Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, Isaiah 54, verse 14, and Isaiah 54, verse 17. Isaiah 41, 10, Isaiah 54, 14, Isaiah 54, 17. Say it with me one more time. We are righteous by the blood of Jesus. Amen. God bless you folks.